All right. Hey, have any of you ever been in a situation like Buddy where you were somewhere where you weren't wanted? Have you ever been in that kind of, you know, most of the time um, you, you don't know you're not wanted until later. You just kind of had that feeling. People normally don't just look at you and say, get out. But then you left and you thought, I don't really think I was wanted there tonight. I don't know if you've ever felt like that before. We had a situation like that in our, uh, in our country recently. I don't know if you heard about it. There was these, uh, this couple called the, uh, the Salahis. Have you heard about these folks? That they just showed up at the White House, you know, and got in line and walked in and went to a state dinner. It was a pretty cool deal. Got to actually meet the president and everything. And uh, that, that was like the ultimate in being an uninvited guest were the Salahis. And the, the thing that I thought about when I heard that is I thought, you know, I know Barack Obama promised change, but this is pretty radical right here, just letting anybody and everybody walk in the White House. And maybe you've been in that situation, you felt like you were an uninvited guest, and, and it's, I know it's hard to believe, but there were people, when Jesus showed up on the scene in Bethlehem all those years ago, there were people who felt kind of towards Jesus the way that girl felt towards Buddy, the elf. They didn't want Jesus showing up. They didn't want him coming to, to earth. And so even though that, that his arrival had been talked about and, and had been prophesied and, and, uh, and there were lots of people that were looking forward to it, there was some other folks who, when Jesus showed up, they weren't happy. They viewed him as an uninvited guest. They viewed him as an intruder. In fact, some of the folks were actually afraid of what he might do. And we're going to talk today about the fact that, that maybe we feel that way towards Jesus sometimes as well. So I want you, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew's in the second part of the Bible. That's the New Testament. Matthew's the first book in the, the second part of the Bible. Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to read some scripture there. And uh, before we do that, didn't the little kids do great up here? That was awesome. Uh, glad that they were, glad they were here. And uh, if, uh, if, if you came here just to see the little kids, we are glad that you're here today. And uh, if you have a regular church we, you go to, you give your tithe to that church this week, not here, okay, because they need your money over there, and be sure you go back to that church. But if you're here today visiting and you came to see these kids and you don't attend church anywhere, we'd love for you to show up here uh, again next week, and you can hang out some with us and find out what everything here is all about. But I'm not trying to get any members from those other churches, all right? So if, you're, if you go to those other places, you go back there next week. But look at Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read the first few verses in this, uh, in this chapter and we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus really was viewed as an uninvited guest when he came to Bethlehem. Matthew 2, starting with verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. That part in, in verse 6 there, that's 
from the book of Micah in the Old Testament. And Micah was, lived 700 years before Jesus came to earth. And, and he prophesied and said, hey, Jesus is coming and he's going to be born in Bethlehem, this place in Judea, a little town called Bethlehem. And that's exact little town called Bethlehem. That'd be a good name for a song if anyone of y'all were to write that, little town of Bethlehem. And, uh, and so he, uh, that, that was talked about 700 years before. But what's interesting about this is it says King Herod was not happy about Jesus showing up. And look at verse, uh, verse 2 there, or verse 3. It actually says there, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He was disturbed. And some of the scriptures uh, that you might read, uh, if you've got different, uh, different versions of the Bible, uh, they say some words, uh, they, some scriptures use the term deeply troubled. And it's funny that a, a big, powerful king, would be bothered, would be disturbed, would be deeply troubled about a baby being born. Much less a baby who had been born in a barn and, uh, and, and was just a, a son of a carpenter, no money, no, no real earthly power. It's funny that Herod would be bothered by that. But to understand that, you have to understand a little bit about Herod. And the first thing you have to understand about Herod is this. Herod believed that there's only room for one king. There's only room for one king. See, the fact that Jesus was a baby, that's not what bothered Herod. Babies were born in Bethlehem every day. It didn't really concern Herod that much. What bothered Herod was how this baby was described. Look at verse 2 there, Matthew 1. When the, when the Magi showed up, this is how they described the baby. They said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? See, Herod knew that his kingdom that he was in charge of, it was full of almost only Jews. And so he was thinking, well, if this baby is going to be king of the Jews, that means I'm not going to be king anymore. So you have to understand where Herod come from, came from. When you read through the scripture, there's a couple different Herods mentioned. And if you look in history, there were several Herods and uh, fathers and sons of each other and some brothers and that kind of thing. This Herod in Matthew chapter 2 was a guy named Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great, uh, I don't know, he might have given himself the name Herod the Great. That sounds like if you were going to be a king, it sounds like a pretty good thing to be called. If I, you know, I was thinking if I gave myself a name, I've tried to give myself names before and they haven't caught on like Cliff the Unbelievably Handsome, and that just hasn't, that hasn't caught on, I don't know why, or Cliff the Extremely Intelligent, but, uh, but he was called Herod the Great, probably a self-given name. And Herod the Great was the son of a guy named Antipater. If you read in, in history about Herod Antipater, so he was a son, or if you're from Greer, Antipater, or whatever you want to call him, but, but uh, he was this guy, Herod Antipater. And so Herod Antipater was put in charge of the whole area there of Judea by the Roman government. See, Rome was in charge, and so Rome, Rome kind of owned Judea. But they knew, Julius Caesar knew, okay, I can't be everywhere at once, so I'm going to set up these different kings that I'll put over all these territories. They'll all report to me, and they'll do what I say, but I can't be there, so they'll kind of be my eyes and my ears, and they'll be in charge of that area. So Herod Antipater was made, in char was made king of Judea by Julius Caesar. Well, Herod Antipater had four sons, and after he had ruled for a while, I don't know if he got tired or, or whatever happened, but he had been ruling for a while, and he said, you know what, I'm going to divide this kingdom into four equal parts and let my four sons have, uh, have a part of it. And so his son, Herod, who later became known as Herod the Great, was put in charge of Galilee. That's where Bethlehem was. So that's how he became king. Now, what you have to understand about Herod the Great is, is Herod the Great lived in fear of losing his power. 
He so feared losing his power that he would regularly execute members of his family. Anyone that he thought was trying to move up the ladder and probably have him killed so that they could become king, he would just go ahead and be proactive in that situation and go ahead and just have them killed before they could kill him. In fact, he went so far in doing that that he even had one of his own sons executed to be sure that he would not lose his power. So now you understand just a little bit why when Herod the Great is sitting there one day, minding his own business, and these three very rich, very powerful guys show up, and they say, hey, we're looking for the king of the Jews. He's just been born recently. Where can we find him? Now you understand why when those people showed up, it bothered him so much. Now you understand why he was deeply troubled, as some scriptures say, or he was disturbed by this because he was so afraid of losing his power. Now, here's the funny thing about that. Jesus didn't want Herod's throne. Jesus didn't want Herod's throne. Jesus came to earth, and he had no intention of just being the king of Galilee. He had no intention of, of, of being some type of governmental leader or, or some type of, uh, of king or monarch here on earth. That wasn't his plan at all. So Herod had this, this fear that really was an unnecessary fear. And, and he went to great lengths to try to stop Jesus from becoming something Jesus never intended to become. And he, and he, and he, was, he did all these things, and we'll, we'll see in a minute how far he would go. He went so far to try to do away with a fear that really was not, didn't need to be there. Which is, this is a, a sermon for a different day, which is kind of how we do sometimes. We have these fears that really we don't have to have. We're afraid of things that we really you know, aren't ever going to come to pass. And we'll do all kinds of things to make sure those things don't happen. And it's really a waste of our time. But that, like I said, that's, that's for another day. But the reason Jesus didn't want to be king of Galilee... And the reason he didn't want Herod's throne is Herod's throne was too small. Jesus didn't show up here to be king of Galilee. We're talking about the guy who made everything. Did you know the scripture tells us that Jesus was present at creation? That Jesus made, Jesus breathed life into Adam. Jesus made the earth. Jesus made the mountains. Jesus made the oceans. He made all the animals. He made the sun and the moon and everything else. And you think he wants to come to earth and just be king of a little place called Galilee where there was a little town called Bethlehem? That's way, way, way too small for what Jesus was planning to do. The other thing that we know about Herod after reading this is that Herod didn't know who he was dealing with. See, if Herod knew who Jesus was, he wouldn't have known that the only reason Herod was in power to begin with is because Jesus had allowed that to happen. And he would also have known that the only way he was going to stay in power is if Jesus continued to allow him to stay in power. And at the moment Jesus decided, you don't need to be in power anymore, he wouldn't be. See, that's how it works with, with authority here on this earth. We get so bent out of shape about, well, this person's in charge and that person's in charge. God knows who's in charge because he's allowed that person to be in charge. And when he's done with that person being in charge, he's going to remove them. He's going to get them out of there. Because in the Scripture backs that up all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, that God is in charge of all those things. And so the reason Jesus didn't want Herod's power is because he could have Herod's power anytime he wanted to. It's like our dog at our house, Buddy. Not Buddy the Elf, but Buddy the Dog. We have a dog named, I know it's an extremely original name, probably the only dog in the world named Buddy, but, but we have a dog named Buddy. 
And, uh, and every once in a while, we'll give Buddy a treat, like little, you know, bone, milk, not milk bone, but I don't know, these little treats, they look like bones, and we'll give it to him. And Buddy, normally when we give him those treats, you know what he does with them? He runs off and he hides them somewhere in the house. Uh, I guess maybe because he can't dig through the carpet and dig underground like he would if he was outside. But he'll hide them somewhere, and, and sometimes I'll find them. You'll move like a couch on the pillow, and there'll be Buddy's treat laying there. He had, you know, dug it up the, under there, that kind of thing. And, and he runs off and hides it like we're going to take it from him. Like the thing I really want is to steal his treat back because, you know, I won't. And I don't because they really don't even taste that good. And so, so I don't want those things. But, and so he'll run off and hide them like we want that. And I think Herod was, it was, that's what Herod was doing. And I think sometimes we do the same things. It's like Herod said, oh, I've got to hold on to this power. Jesus didn't want that power. And maybe you have some things in your life. Maybe there are some things in your life and you're treating Jesus as an uninvited guest because there's some things in your life that you think, he's, he's going to take that from me. He's going to take my money. Cliff's been talking about giving 10% at the church. If I really get involved with Jesus, he's going to take all my money. And he's going to take my fun. I go out and I do all kind of stuff. And if I really get involved with Jesus, he's going to take my fun. So I'm going to take this part of my life and I'm going to compartmentalize it. I'm going to hide it over here and, and get it out of the way so that maybe Jesus won't find it behind the pillow on the couch or whatever it might be because he's going to take that stuff from me. But see, if Buddy, my dog, knew who I was, and knew how powerful of a man that I am. He would know that the only reason he has a treat to begin with is because I have allowed him to have a treat. He, even though he is an extremely smart dog, he is unable to get in a car and to drive to PetSmart and to purchase his own treats. He is unable to open a bag because he doesn't have thumbs, right? And so, the only reason he has a treat is because me and my infinite goodness towards him will allow him to have the treat. And at any time that I decide he's no longer worthy of having treats, I can take the treats away. And that's exactly the way God is in our lives. The only reason you have money is because God has allowed you to have money. And the moment he doesn't want you to have any more money... He, he doesn't have to wait for you to give it to him. He can take it away. The only reason you have fun is because God has allowed you to have fun. And if he doesn't want you to have any more fun, he'll take that away. The only reason you have friends and relationships and all these things we have is God has allowed us to have those things. And in his wisdom and in his goodness, he can take those things away whenever he wants to. And that's exactly the way Jesus was when he came to earth. Herod, Herod was so worried about losing his power. And if Jesus had wanted to, even as a baby, he could have said whatever needed to be said and Herod would have been dethroned and out of power in Rome. Because Herod believed there was room for only one king. Now look at how the story continues. Look at Matthew chapter 2, 7 and 8. So after the wise men have shown up and they've asked, where's the king of the Jews? And then Herod does this, verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, Herod was a pretty smart guy. You don't 
kill all these people and stay in power as long as he did without being pretty shrewd. And one of the things Herod decided was, you know what, I'm going to kill that baby. He had already made that up, that mind, his mind up about that. But he said, there's no sense in me going looking for it. These guys are already looking for him. Let them do the legwork. They'll go find him. I'll just have them come back to me, tell me where he is, and I'll send some of my guys over there and we'll kill the baby and that'll be the end of it. And that, you know, no, no big deal. So that was his plan. That, that was what he was going to do. And uh, he, was, he was going to try to get rid of Jesus. And so this leads us to there are two responses that people have to Jesus in this story. One is the response of Herod, who was treating Jesus as an uninvited guest. And the other is the response of the wise men. And the two responses are this. One is Herod's response. Herod attempted to destroy him. Herod attempted to destroy him. And then the response of the wise men is that the wise men bowed down and worshipped him. The wise men bowed, bowed down and worshipped him. Let's look at the destroy response first. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 2. This is what Herod did. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Herod was so intent on keeping his power. He was so worried about the fact that Jesus might be coming to take over his throne that when the wise men didn't come back, and the reason they didn't come back is because God told them not to come back. He sent them a vision, and it said, don't go back to Herod, he's wanting to kill Jesus. And so when the wise men didn't show back up, Herod said, fine, I will kill every baby. I can't find, I don't know where he is, I don't know, know what his name is, I don't know where he's going to be, so we'll just kill every single boy under the age of two years old in Bethlehem. Now you talk about an overreaction to a situation, but that's what Herod was known for. He, would, he didn't care who he hurt, he didn't how, care how far he had to go, he would do whatever it took to hold on to his power. Now the second reaction is the reaction of the wise men. And they worshipped him. Look at verse 9 of Matthew chapter 2. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. See the, you see the difference in the, in the two reactions here? Herod, who wanted to destroy Jesus, would go so far as to kill innocent babies all throughout this area. The wise men instead showed up, and it says that they bowed down in front of a child. Now, why is that significant? Well, in those days, when you would approach a king, you would approach someone in power, if you wanted to show them that you were coming in peace, if you wanted to show them that you, you, you weren't trying to take over their kingdom, you would come and you would bow down in front of them. Because what bowing was, it was a symbol of trust and submission. It was a symbol of trust because when you bow down, you were exposing your head that could be chopped off. When you're bowed down, if the king doesn't want you to live, he can just tell one of his guys, hey, cut that dude's... In fact, they probably didn't have to say it. He probably had like a secret you know, sign like, 
something like that. And they would just chop the guy's head right off while you were bowed down. So you wouldn't even know it was coming, right? But, but so bowing was a symbol of submission and a symbol of trust. So when they come to Jesus, what they're saying when they bow down is they're saying, yeah, you're a child, and we, we understand that, but we know who you are. We know that you are the Son of God, and we come to you even though we're rich, even though we're powerful, even though we have lots of people that answer to us. We're coming to you, and by bowing down in front of you, we're letting you know that we're giving our lives to you. We trust you with our lives. We are submitting to you to your power. Our power is nothing compared to your power. And we are giving ourselves over to you. They bowed and they worshipped him. And see, I know that I'm a simple guy and I, I really tend to see things very simply. But the way I see it is we have those same two choices today. We can either try to destroy what Jesus is, trying to, is wanting to do in our lives or we can bow down and worship Him and be submissive to Him and trust Him. And you might say, wait, 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 Cliff. There is no way that I'm trying to destroy what Jesus wants to do in my life. I would never try to destroy what Jesus wants to do in my life. Yeah, so I, I might ignore what Jesus says. I know what the Bible says and, and I choose not to do what the Bible says. I might deliberately disobey Jesus. But I'm not trying to destroy what Jesus wants to do in my life. I love Jesus. I think Jesus is great. I just don't want Him really involved in all of my life. I'm not trying to destroy what Jesus is doing in my life. Think about it in terms of marriage. When you got married, if you're married or if you've been married before, when you got married, you stood there and you took a vow. You stood before everybody and you took a vow and you said, this is the person for me. I love them. I'm never going to mess around with anybody else. I'm never going to leave them. No matter if times get difficult, no matter what happens, we're going to work this thing out, and it's the two of us, and we love each other. Now, once you take that vow, imagine if the next week or two weeks later, you, um, you immediately go out and you find someone else that you're attracted to, and you commit adultery with them. Now, Anyone with any sense would say, you're trying to destroy that marriage. That's just a, a blatant way of trying to destroy the marriage. But now think about it this way. What if after you take those vows, you, don't, you never look at anyone else other than your husband or wife? You never flirt with anyone else other than your husband or wife? You never really even have any kind of serious conversation with anyone else other than your husband or wife? You don't touch anyone else? You don't kiss anyone else? Your thoughts don't even think about anyone else other than your husband or wife. But you ignore your husband or your wife. You don't ever talk to them. You know there are things that would please them that if you would do them, and you intentionally go out of your way not to do the things that would please your husband and your wife. Now what's going to happen to that marriage? It's going to end up in the same place the other marriage is going to end up. You're destroying the marriage either way. Just one, you were very blatant and open about it. The other, you just kind of took longer to do because you decided you were going to ignore that. Now when it comes to your relationship with Jesus... There are very few of you in here that would stand up and say, I deny Jesus, I don't believe He died on the cross, and I want to serve Satan for the rest of my life. I don't know any of you in here that want to do that, that are going out today and joining the church of Satan or do anything crazy like that or becoming a Muslim or just denying that Jesus is who He says He is. But if you're ignoring Him, 
if you, there are things that you know that would please Jesus and you intentionally make a, make a choice not to do those things. Jesus, I know that you would like for me to do this, but I don't want to do that, so I'm going to do this over here. Where, where does that leave our relationship with Him? We're destroying what Jesus wants to do in our lives. Maybe it's not even intentional. Maybe it's not something that you woke up today and said, I'm going to destroy what Jesus wants to do. But by the way we live and the choices we make, we destroy what Jesus wants to do in our lives when we live that way. And then the other choice is we can bow down and we can worship Him. Just like the wise men, we can willingly give everything we have to Him. We can come to Jesus and we can say, this money is yours, this house is yours, these relationships are yours, my time is yours, my occupation is yours, everything that I've got is yours, Jesus. I trust you. I submit my life to you because I know that you're the king. I know that you know better. There's a story in, in the scriptures in the Gospel of Luke and a, a guy comes up to Jesus and the scripture describes him as young and rich and powerful. He's, and the scripture says he's a rich young ruler. And, and this young, powerful, wealthy guy comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, uh, what do I need to do to become one of your followers? And Jesus says, well, you've got to keep all the commandments and obey everything that I've taught. And uh, he says, I've been doing that since I was a little kid. And what did Jesus say to him? He looked at him and said, there's one more thing you need to do. Now, he wasn't telling everybody to do this, but he said, there's one more thing you need to do. You need to go sell everything you've got and give the money to the poor, then you can come follow me. You know what the guy did? He walked away. He chose money instead of Jesus. And the reason Jesus told him that is because Jesus knew that this guy was coming standing on his own two feet. This guy was coming proud of who he was and what he had accomplished. And Jesus said, you can't come to me on your feet. You've got to come to me on your face. You've got to come to me bowed down in submission. You've got to come to me the way the wise men came to me. They came to me bowed down. Not only were they not trying to hold on to their power or to something that they had like Herod was doing, they were coming and they were saying, we give you everything. And we're going to even give you gifts just as a symbol of the fact that everything we have is yours. And that's really the only way we can come to Jesus, is we can come to him on our face, not on our terms, but on his terms, because he's the king. And sometimes I think we want to come to him and say, hey, Jesus, I, want, I, really, like, I really want my sins forgiven because that whole burning in hell thing for eternity, I'm really not into that. So I want my sins forgiven, but I also want to be able to hold on to this part of my life over here. And I want Friday nights just for me. i got to blow off some steam, Jesus. But you know that my sins are forgiven, right? I'm going to heaven when I die. But, but I really want my checkbook just for me because summer's coming up here in a few months and i really got to get a new sea do. But that's not the way we can come to Jesus. You see, Herod had one thing right. There's only room for one king. There's only room for one king. And that king is Jesus. We try to make ourselves king. 
We try to make money king. We try to make our spouses or our children king. But Jesus is king. There's only room for one. And today we have the opportunity to bow down and to worship him. Now this is what I want you to do. Every, just about every week at this time, I ask you to bow your heads and then I'll say that the people who need to accept Christ can pray a prayer and I pray a prayer after that. This is what I want you to think about just for a second. Now, I'm not, now listen, don't, don't, don't be thinking about going to eat yet. I see some of you already packing up. Don't, don't stop, don't miss this. This is the most important thing I'm going to say today, all right? I'm not here today to make anyone doubt their salvation, but I want you to examine your salvation just for a minute. Because I'm convinced that if you grew up in the South, you've been to church your whole life, and a lot of us Southerners, we just think because we were born here, we're all saved. And I want you to think about this. Whatever happened to you as a kid or a teenager or as a young adult or whenever you accepted Christ, did it change your life? Have you truly bowed down and given your life to Jesus? Because if you didn't submit everything to Him back when, whenever that was, then chances are you've missed out. And you have an opportunity today to start and say, today I'm going to submit it all. Whatever happened back then happened, but I know today, I want to be certain that today, I've given my entire life to Jesus. I'm not holding anything back. If he wants me to quit my job, I'll quit my job. If he wants me to move, I'll move. If he wants me to stay where I am forever, even though I want to move, I'll stay where I am forever. I'll do whatever he says because he is the king. So I want you to bow your heads. And if you need to submit to Jesus today, You can do that by praying this prayer. You can pray it after me. Jesus, I know that I've sinned. I need to be forgiven. And I try to hold parts of my life back from you. I don't want to do that anymore. Today I'm bowing down in front of you because I trust you. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again. And I'm giving you my life. Thank you for dying for me. Amen.